everyone. Welcome to the Branching Factor podcast. This is episode number nine. We're almost at 10 episodes. Very exciting. I'm your host, Tommy Thompson. And for this episode, we're doing something a little bit different. Uh, the rest of the team are not with me today. And in fact, I'm not even going to be here with you in a couple of minutes. What we're actually going to do is replay a, an event that took place back in June that I was part of. And I wanted to make sure to capture that when we actually ran the panel. We captured it all and then we're going to share it all with you so that you can get to enjoy the roughly hour long event that we had. And I'll get into that all in a second. But yes, first of all, thanks again for joining us and listening to the podcast. If you're new to the show and you have no idea what this is about, Branching Factor is another gaming podcast because we didn't have enough already, which looks to demystify a lot of the world in and around game development and games research. And so for this episode, we're actually doing something a little bit special. Back in June, I was invited to attend the Artificial Intelligence and Games Summer School, uh, which is organised by two prominent researchers in the field, Yargos Yanakakis and Julian Tegelius. It was held at Microsoft Research here in the UK in Cambridge, and I was invited to come along and generally be a bit of a nonsense, um, or a nuisance rather, and help out in a few other capacities where I could. And one of the ways in which I did actually help out was I moderated a panel that ran on the third day of the event in which I brought together a variety of speakers from the summer school to talk a little bit about some of the uh, the topics that had been relevant to us throughout the summer school, but also just bringing in some external ideas and thoughts that I had. And so the summer school, of course, it's meant to be a crash course on people who, for people who are interested in learning more about artificial intelligence and how it can be employed in the games industry, but also looking at a lot of the big innovations happening in and around research. And so my panel uh, was comprised of a really nice mix of people um, from all across the sector. Uh, first of all, we had uh, Katja Hoffman, um, who is one of the directors of games research at Microsoft Research and has been involved in an awful lot of their work in and around training AI that can learn to play Minecraft. Uh, we had Dugu Chakmak, who is the R&D technical director at Creative Assembly. Here in the UK, Creative Assembly, of course, the studio famous for creating the likes of the Total War franchise and a certain little game called Alien Isolation, which if you're a fan of my YouTube channel, AI and Games, no doubt you'll have heard of. Next up, we had Oscar Stahlberg, who is an independent game developer uh, who is largely known for his work in procedural generation and technical art, notably his indie title Townscaper, which has also been a video on my AI and Games series, uh, which has proven to be very, very popular. And last but not least, we had Wesley Kerr, who is also one of the R&D tech directors, but this time he's over at Riot Games in the United States, of course, very famous for creating games such as League of Legends and Valorant. So we're going to hear from the four of them uh, for the next roughly 45 minutes to an hour. Uh, I will apologise in advance that there's a, the audio is a little quiet on myself. And that's because the, our speakers actually had a microphone or a couple of microphones that were passing between them. So you can hear them quite clearly. But I was relying on the microphones that were on the front of the podium where I was standing and they weren't as sensitive as I thought they were. And as such, it's a little hard to hear me in spots. But at the end of the day, you're not really here to listen to me. You're here to listen to them. So without further ado, let's get into it. So yeah, today for this panel, what we wanted to do is just sort of have a bit of a conversation around a lot of the topics that are recurring 
throughout the summer school, even some things that haven't really cropped up in the summer school. And um, what I'm actually really grateful for is I had the unenviable task of trying to come up with questions for this panel. And then everybody at some point wound up tackling one of the issues that was in the back of my head in their talks. So first of all, congratulations to everyone for all the wonderful talks here at the summer school. Go on. But right, let's let's get into it. Um, I think particularly for our audience, we've got a really nice mix of um, Mario AI researchers, got games industry professionals, uh, PhD candidates um, at different stages, and also just a lot of people at different phases of their respective careers. And I think being in and around AI and games, particularly now in 2023, can be a little intimidating. Um, a lot of this sector is moving very quickly. Uh, it's actually very difficult to keep up, I think, with a lot of the subject matter that's happening. And this isn't just for yourselves in the audience, it's also for our speakers, it's also for me. And I thought I wanted to ask yourselves, um, I think maybe we'll start with Wes because he's looking primed and ready to go. Like, so what's been like the topic or talk or conversation that you've had at the summer school that's really stuck with you and you're thinking you're, that's the thing you want to go and uh, talk about internally when you get back to the studio? Um, so I think there were two, uh, well actually now I'm going to go with three. Uh, and I missed the first day, so I, I caveat that with not being able to say I've, I've seen them all. Um, so uh, Merrick's talk on the LLMs resonated greatly with work we're doing in our labs, and it's already been shared back with my team um, as an exciting thing that uh, gives us confidence we're looking in the right direction uh, when multiple people are sort of signaling in on the same thing. Um, and it was your talk uh, that helped me sort of find good ways to talk with my team about how we ground actual actions in the game with what these LLMs are doing, because there's a lot of discussion internally of, oh yeah, the LLM will just figure it out and go with it. And and we've seen that we're gonna need some sort of planning in game and how do we break apart that planning and how we think about that planning and, and draw that line between LLMs and and the game engine itself where the simulation takes place. And Oscar's talk, um, I, I love because it highlights different ways of, of doing things at small scale, but holding it beautifully um, and, and using these algorithms in really creative ways to, to create really engaging things. What's the question? <laughs> so yeah, what's, what's the thing from the summer school you, you're taking away from this? What's the thing you're thinking that you might want to around with or even discuss with uh, colleagues right well i don't have any colleagues first of all but uh no i mean the big like this most of this the presentations i've been seeing are quite far from the stuff i'm doing mostly they're a lot lot bigger uh so uh it's probably not going to be super relevant to the work i do but it's very fascinating to see like people taking these huge problems and how different like my day i'm spending like making sure like uh, the indexes of triangle corners are correct and drawing little diagrams of how different triangles are supposed to fit together. So like the amount of data I'm working with at a time is it's a lot smaller, whereas these are like huge data mining operations, gathering huge amounts of data. So it doesn't seem like this kind of stuff, at least for a while, will have applications for, for smaller things where you can't spend a lot of time like buying computing time or like uh, running huge servers overnight, testing your game, stuff like that. It's also, I mean, it kind of reminds me of, you know how like the 
the, the chips and the hardware we're using is getting faster and faster and faster all the time, but we're writing worse and worse code on like more and more high levels of abstraction. And I mean, I do this myself. Uh, and um, so the programs we're writing and the apps we're using are not actually getting any faster. And it really seems like LMMs and stuff is just going to take this to the next level where we're going to perform the simplest task. We'll sell, send like huge prompts to some computer somewhere that does like burns a whole bucket of coal to uh, process this and then sends us back like a little image that does something simple. So I think that's a, a thing to watch out for a little bit. I mean, I laugh, but you're not wrong. Our work here on the Branching Factor podcast is made possible thanks to the good folks who support us on Patreon. As you might know, me, Tommy, the host here of the Branching Factor podcast, I run the AI and Games YouTube channel. I talk about how artificial intelligence works in video games and how AI research is empowered by the use of games. And AI and Games has been supported by our Patreon community for several years now. And it's thanks to them that we receive sponsorship that helps me and the team do more, including spending time with my friends right here on the Branching Factor podcast. Supporters on Patreon get access to a whole bunch of content for the Branching Factor podcast. You get to listen to episodes ad-free and even get to listen to them early before they go live to the wider world. Plus, you can submit questions to the team here on our Discord server, have your name read out in our producer credits, and even get bonus content that doesn't get published elsewhere. To find out how to join, head on over to patreon.com forward slash AI and games. That's Patreon. P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash AI and games. And a special thanks to all of our patrons for their continued support of everything we're doing right here on Branching Factor. Hello. Ah, yeah, that's better. Yeah, there's like a lot of great talks, actually. It's really difficult to choose from because when you listen something uh, outside of your you know, own little um, day-to-day work, it sparks a lot of interesting uh, thoughts and ideas. But if I have to choose, um, I'll choose a few as well. Uh, <laughs> starting with uh, your talk, I think it was really inspiring for me because uh, on a higher level, um, so my research group is very small and we are starting and it's been like a year and so on. So there's like a lot of things to learn from, from an established uh, group. And, you know, even looking at how you structure your groups and how you're going back to, uh, you know, the goal of the uh, company, the mission and how you uh, actually direct your research is was um something to think about for me because I think I'm uh, we are trying to I am trying to look at a lot of things all at once um, so thank you for that uh, insight and spark uh, we are also looking at procedural content generation from uh, different angles as well so your talk was very insightful as well thank you so much and that's one thing for sure I will uh, bring back to the uh, PCG group and um, talk in depth on um, the things I learned. I mean, this is a little bit like as if talking to all, but <laughs> also Katya's talk uh, was great uh, as well, but on a higher level, uh, actually. 
uh, combining with the things I've been uh, talking about, like the personalities, for example, that comes uh, from design at the moment. And your talk sort of got, gave me some ideas on, could I actually look into creating more human-like personalities and how we can actually uh, go towards that direction? So, yeah, I guess that's it. Thank you. Um, I think in terms of this panel, um, my work, my group, uh, my team is probably the most firmly rooted in academia. And what something that I really enjoy about this audience, this whole venue, is that there is this um, place where we bring together people from very much just the industry, people who are very much tied to academia and everyone in between. And I think that's a, a big um, um, strength that this whole community has. Now, as being uh, located here in this building and having to work for my day job as well <laughs> during the summer uh, school, unfortunately, I've only been able to very briefly dip in and out. And so um, one thing that um, I took away very early was actually a comment that uh, one of my colleagues made about kind of observing the overall trends and discussions um, that he experienced here at the summer school. So it's a comment that uh, Ansi made early on, and he said that, he was amazed how much um, the level of relevance um, has suddenly increased of many of the discussions and topics that have been brewing, that have been discussed, especially in academia, um, for years and years. Of course, people didn't start thinking about AI and games um, yesterday or last year or whenever ChatGPT was released. Uh, we've collectively been thinking about those ideas um, for years or maybe even decades. And um, the point that we're at now um, where suddenly everyone realizes that this has become relevant and that there's something, some things that actually work, huge things that don't yet work. Um, it's a big opportunity for everyone in this room as well to understand, well, what exactly is the background? What is that thinking? What are the ideas that I bring to this, to this discussion? And how does my thinking have to maybe change now that, um, a lot of things are becoming possible very quickly. Am I still asking the right questions? Are they exactly in line with where we're heading? Or should I think about things in a novel way? And I think all those conversations are super relevant and valuable um, and something that um, only only um, can happen at a, at a location like this. Fantastic. And this actually ties into, um, this is perfectly segueing into another question. I didn't plan this, but we're going to do it. Um, this, the, there is an ongoing change in a dynamic in how artificial intelligence and what we mean by artificial intelligence in the context of games versus even five years ago. And I was thinking um, over the last couple of days, so a couple of years ago, the broad conversation around AI was big companies with large data sets were figuring out how to solve games. They were, uh, whether it was the likes of Google DeepMind with AlphaStar, we had the OpenAI 5 um, from uh, for Dota 2, but then also, you know, of course, there was things like uh, MinRL and Project Malmo, which are approaching it in a very different in a very different way. Well, that's yourself and Hansi. But it seems like the discourse of training AI for games has largely disappeared. And now the the, the thing is generative AI. Forget we'll get to that later. Let's not get into that at the moment. Um, but funnily enough, and then just this morning, Wes challenges that, which I thought was fantastic. I, I loved that. Because what I was wondering is, do we still see a need for this kind of work to continue? Because a lot of these teams that were established 
largely dissipated and, and moved on af afterwards. Like, Katja, from your perspective, particularly as someone who's been very involved in that space, like, do you still see that relevance going forward? And does the agenda or priority for that, is that going to change and evolve in the coming years? Um, can I just make sure that I understand the, the premise here? So you're saying that um, the, the research groups or the research that has been focused on purely oral or generative AI for yeah, games or with games as benchmark has disappeared or, or what, what's the observation there? Sort of the, the priority of using games as a benchmark to advocate for deep RL, mm -hmm. which, right. yeah, that was kind of a big talking point like a couple of years ago, but doesn't seem mm. to be as much now. Interesting. And so within the context of my team, we've for eight years, I don't know exactly how long, but for, for many, many years, we've been advocating and we've been saying that games are not just a benchmark, but they're a fantastic application area as well. And uh, we're seeing some of that happening. And that's hugely gratifying to see um, that that is something that is being picked up. At the same time now, I would say, you know, don't, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Games still are a fantastic benchmark for many, many technologies that need to be developed. And as, as mentioned before, there are huge challenges that um, haven't been tackled yet. We don't yet have AI that could collaborate, collaborate with humans uh, anywhere near as effectively as we're able to collaborate with, with other people um, around us. That's just one example of, of a challenge that, that remains to be solved. I'd much rather use um, game or game-like environments to push those technologies and test, evaluate those in a relatively um, safe sandbox-like environment rather than getting people to deploy um, things immediately into, let's say, safety-critical real-world applications. So there's definitely a value for that in terms of games as well. And some of those techniques can be um, pushed further um, in a way where you create a benchmark that is still relatively abstract. And it just really depends on where, in terms of maturity, um, a given technology is at this particular point in time. So I think there is place for things that are almost ripe for um, deployment to be um, built and evaluated precisely or very or, or almost precisely in the environment that they're targeting. There's space for slightly broader exploration of things that are um, maybe going to be shippable in the next couple of years. And then there are things that are so far out there that you need to just get a rough signal of where you're heading and benchmarks are fantastic for driving progress in that technology. So I think all of that is still there. Um, and maybe there's less of this public shouting of, um, hey, we've solved this and everyone in the world should know about it. Um, but we don't usually decide our research goals and, and, and strategy based on that, um, but rather on what can we actually devo develop and what is the quickest way to get there. Anything to add on top of that? I... <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I... I think the the chatter from LLMs has sort of eclipsed uh, the the deep RL uh, excitement, but I still feel that undertone, uh, like you mentioned, of lots of research still happening there. It's just not getting the, the big nature uh, papers and and places like OpenAI, while they've seemed to stop talking as much about RL, um, they're using RL in different ways, um, especially as they push forward their their research towards AGI, I think they're sort of doubling down on these large language models being their path there, uh, and then throwing in multimodalities to it and, and trying to make it work. So while um, 
public interest in these large capstone projects that that highlight we're close to solving all games have have waned. Um, the interest, especially at Riot and and other studios that I chat with, uh, is still very much there, and we're excited to see what we can do with it. Oh, and the other thing that we have seen is I love the EBM talk on uh, talking about different ways of leveraging behavior cloning and and these other techniques that help drive down the cost uh, because as I highlighted, like 10, $13 million of training run is not something that most studios can do. Um, and so we, we've seen a lot of efforts in getting clever uh, with how we can actually get policies that play these games at reasonable levels um, in other ways. Thank you all for that. I mean, I think you kind of just tapped in slightly there about, I loved your cost thing in your, your talk this morning, because also that was kind of roughly the back of the, 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 the napkin arithmetic that I had um, at one point. I was like, yeah, we're out by about 1.5 million, I think, which isn't bad. Um, and that kind of speaks to what I think is is actually, a, it's an ongoing conversation on Twitter right now. It has been a very interesting kind of 24, 48 hours. So in case you missed it, Julian almost broke the embargo on Unity's AI tools yesterday. Well done. <laughs> Emphasis on almost. You didn't actually do it. But um, yeah, so the Unity game engine announced two new generative AI tools yesterday. We have Muse, which is a GPT-like for Unity development, and Centus, which is basically their new version of Barracuda. Um, it's a neural network bridge for Unity runtime. And again, we're seeing a lot of these big developments for ML and generative AI is also currently, as Unity have stated, only for experimental purposes to help them test the beta. It's not commercially applicable a whole host of reasons, but what it actually, the interesting thing observing beyond the, the legal um, and kind of data processing aspects of the conversation, the other thing that's coming up a lot in my feed is whether this is relevant, or whether or not this is actually practical for people who are using these game engines. And, you know, we're talking a lot about tools that enable um, us. And so actually I wanted to pass this specifically to Oscar as someone who has built a myriad of tools to service your production. Um, you know, are there tools that you would love to see that are actually going to get built or even just ways that these engines could be better built to support these day-to-day -day realities for indies such as yourself who are either individuals, independents, or very small teams? It doesn't seem like these studio, these uh, engine um, developers are really working in their best interests. Not really. I mean, I've not been really... The only new Unity feature I've been really excited about is the Burst compiler, which is super, super fast. One of the reasons that remain to stay with Unity. And even with this kind of... like All the big features they've launched recently have kind of been half-finished and then they don't even finish them. So who knows what's going to happen with this thing. But... Um, no, it's it's hard to tell. It's There's also the... Especially like when you work as an... The, the thing with generative AI, or at least the experience that I've had with generative AI so far, is that, I mean, it does give you something that's very representative of what's already out there, uh, typically, right? It's, uh, it, it gives you a polite sort of a, a correct uh, mean answer to the question. And a lot of what you have to do, especially as an indie, is you need to do super unique things that are like only yours. And of course... Um, that's probably not what a generative AI trained on what's already out there is going to spit out for you. So it will probably make it a lot easier for people to do like garbage asset flip games. Uh, That's my nightmare. Yeah. I'm thinking Steam Direct is going to get a lot worse in the next 12 days. <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, but I mean, well, I mean, yeah. Uh, I don't know how big of it. I mean, it still costs money to publish your game on Steam, so I don't know how big problem it is if it's an avalanche of games that don't make any money back. I mean, that it, it could be a self-correcting problem, uh, sort of. Um, so I don't really know. I just like not being that deep into the field. There f- still feels like there should be some aspects where um, a generative AI could be really useful. For example, um, interpolating animations like hand-drawn animations. Uh, so you can just like draw a couple of frames and then you get all the middle frames and then maybe you tweak those so it like uh, makes the other ones next to it better. Stuff like that. Uh, doing things like um, uh, generating the skyboxes for the game, stuff like that, which seems like something you could probably do with a super cheap uh, thing going live because it doesn't matter if it's full of artifacts kind of because it's clouds and stuff. So it's, it's pretty abstract already. Uh, so I'm sure there are a bunch of those very specific applications, like reading text out loud is probably another good use case. Um, you know, maybe translation, I guess, but you know, well, that's definitely a use case, but it, so far that tur- it doesn't turn into amazing translation, but sometimes that's fine as well. So, mm. you're probably very conscious about your safety, not least because you don't want people to know you've been binging all the content with my voice on it. Oh no, heaven forbid. This is where having a really solid VPN or virtual private network can be a boost. Thanks to NordVPN you can then go about your business on the internet without worrying about you or your data being tracked. Me? I like to use it when I'm researching a new video and it results in me going to some of the dark and damp corners of the internet. You know, it also comes in handy for all the other reasons you could use a VPN, like streaming region-locked content or occasionally buying games from overseas storefronts, which is super handy in my line of work sometimes. Head to nordvpn.com forward slash games to get a very special AI in games infused discount on a NordVPN subscription, complete with a 30-day money-back guarantee. That's nordvpn.com forward slash games. The link and all the relevant details are also available in the episode notes too. I think in, in that kind of same thread, like Dugu, particularly for yourself, and, and in fact, Wes, both of you in that position of kind of R&D for an established large studio, you're constantly developing internal tools. And is what's your perspective seeing a lot of this stuff happening with these larger, like, Unreal and Unity, I think, are two great examples. They're putting out an awful lot of tools frequently. How often are you looking at that thinking, oh, we should try and come up with something like that internally, or this completely doesn't fit our production line, and you're developing such niche-specific tools to solve this one tiny design problem. Like, what's the, I guess my question is sort of, is there, what kind of disparity is there between the types of tools you're seeing getting announced on a regular basis versus the potentially quaint little things that you're building internally just to support your own development teams? Um, I can talk a little bit about some of the exciting things we've come out of Unity. It was really in the, it's not in the generative AI space, it's much more in that procedural content generation space. Uh, they recently announced, I think it was with 5.2, um, where they, they were rolling this out and, and we're excited to see what it affords us, uh, more so than um, running out and shipping our next title on it. Uh, so we keep a close eye there, but it's also balancing that with things like Houdini. So we have lots of different tools, but I don't want to manage lots of different licenses. So it's like, can I get the same capabilities out of one company rather than multiple? 
Um, on the the generative side, I think a lot of that we we think about bringing that more in house to start, uh, so that we can uh, better control uh, what went into it and also what we're getting out of it, as well as audit how it's being used. So I think I didn't talk about this a lot, but uh, we want to track and make sure we keep we understand what's been generated by AI versus what hasn't, uh, so that we we can sort of flag it and make sure it's removed from any game that would go uh, to players. Um, other tools that we build internally were one of the things I didn't talk about uh, that I actually have a meeting for in an hour and a half um, is discussing how, how we transition some of the research prototypes that we build. So we build a tool, we prove the use case works. Now there's got to be someone that owns that and runs that in production. Uh, Riot really hasn't staffed out that team in that space to sort of a central owner for building out this ecosystems of tools that help us build our games. Mostly it's been wonderful tech designers and tech artists who go in and, and sort of customize the tools for their game um, and then hopefully kind of share it with the next one, although often it gets rebuilt. Uh, yeah, from our um, perspective as well, we're more looking into, as you say, uh, building in-house tools and, you know, it is, um, as you say as well, uh, much uh, easier for authoring and uh, looking into what's going where and also for IP-related purposes as well. Um, yeah, the other... Um, area that I'm looking at uh, a bit uh, is essentially not necessarily just using, you know, generative AI for development, but actually um, creating tools for communication within the studio. Because, you know, you have designers, you have artists, uh, you have QA, and when, especially at the beginning of a project, when you're doing ideation and so on, there's like a lot of iteration because of the misunderstandings, because of, you know, designers imagine something, but artists take it uh, from a very different perspective. So we could probably use the power of um, uh, generative AI to actually become, um, create tools that helps with that communication and foster uh, that communication. So I think seeing that sort of stuff would be uh, interesting um, if people would work on as well. So, thank you all very much, wonderful answers. Um, I've got to put on, I'm wearing my, uh, this is my GDC AI Summit advisor's hat. It does. It actually says ARM, but this is an audio recording. So what you don't know can't kill you. Um, but one of the things, actually, I think, Dugu, actually, your, your talk, actually, there's a number of talks from all of you, I think, we're kind of highlighting that we're in a very interesting space now. When we talk about AI for games, what do we actually mean? And where, depending on where the venue is, depending on the audience, like that, what we're talking about, the techniques, the methodologies, the approaches can shift quite drastically. We're, of course, now in an era, era in which particularly machine learning is becoming increasingly relevant to game productions and a lot of research is much more applicable now to an independent or AAA title versus even five years ago. And what I found interesting in Dugu's talk was you were talking a little bit about the complexities of Total War is such that the, and when you balance the game state complexity and the scope of the games of the of the game world and alongside the needs of designers, 
machine learning and deep learning will often prove impractical. But we're also seeing really useful applications of machine learning for opponents and characters, but also, you know, production tools and the like. What do we feel is sort of the on, you know, what are our thoughts on this relationship? You know, how we've got a skill issue of training up developers. We've got a communication issue in making sure we also don't have entrenched cultures or attitudes um, of good old fashioned game AI versus machine learning. Uh, I wonder from all of you, like, what's your perspectives and thoughts on this? Because it seems what we mean by AI for games is changing literally right now, and it's going to continue to evolve over the next couple of years. Okay, I did reference your talk. Do you want to take that on first? <laughs> yeah, of course. So, yeah, when we talk about AI in games, right, there's like sort of two sides of it nowadays with all the uh, things that's been happening because one is basically uh, getting uh, the AI within the game and uh, maybe exchanging some of the um, existing systems with machine learning and so on. And the other part is using uh, the power of uh, modern approaches to uh, improve the processes, improve the development uh, tools and systems. So with the second part, I think um, because essentially it is not within the game what you are doing, the constraints are much more loose because if your systems is working for 70% of the time, then it's a win. Um, whereas within the games, you actually have to have those systems to be predictable, um, to work as intended, and you would be able to uh, do a proper test coverage. You would be able to, you know, you really don't want to disappoint your players with uh, unexpected uh, results along the uh, way. And especially if it's a game that uh, takes hundreds of hours, uh, after putting 40 hours in, it's like, oops, sorry, you know, this is really not what we wanted to do. Yeah, that's really not, um, that's, a, that's a big risk. And there's quite a few different uh, parts that we need to uh, solve, like um, cost is, of course, uh, one of them. Uh, and the other one is the iterative environment, as I mentioned a little bit in my talk. You basically need systems that you can iterate over quickly, you can change quickly. And also there is the element of uh, authoriz authoring part, right? Because we do like our designers to be able to... Um, put their designs within those features we want um, or, you know, um, narrative uh, designers to be able to uh, put their personality in there as well. So I guess, where, where am I going with this? I just talked too much. <laughs> uh, I guess, yeah, there's a lot of challenges to solve first. And then probably taking a bit of a step back and trying to figure out places where it makes sense to use those systems. Because I don't think we are just going to change um, everything with machine learning in the long term. There's going to be things that it still makes sense to, you know, produce cheaply uh, with great quality and uh, with the ability to, you know, uh, change, test, iterate over quickly. Whereas, 
there will be some uh, places where these systems will actually produce much better results. They're actually going to uh, step up the game and the player experience. So I guess it's a matter of figuring out those steps, starting small and uh, developing over time. Yeah, so, uh, so first of all, I thought your talk was really interesting because it was fun seeing um, how in, in a, because your one was one of the more applied ones and like how does actually AI work in a game and seeing that, yeah, uh, machine learning isn't really useful for the kind of super complex states we have right here. Because when I made the game uh, Bad North, I largely tried to think about, okay, what would Total War look like if it was super small and cute instead? And... Uh, <laughs> When I when I worked on the AI for that, because it's supposed to have this really fluid AI with the units running around and trying to fight each other, I figured, or sort of my realization was that the the, the big challenge is was creating the right abstraction levels for the AI to think about, right? Because it's super messy. There's units everywhere, and there's friends, and there's foes, and they're in different directions, and the and the terrain is complex. But once I managed to figure out some good models for creating an uh, an abstract and sort of a very abstract representation of the battlefield, so any unit can have a sense of like, you know, how much in how much in power is my side versus the other side? Like, what's the rough relative strange strength at the position I'm standing right now? Not just globally across the map, right? In what sort of rough direction is the enemy, and are they sort of roughly behind me or mostly in one direction? And once I had sort of managed to abstract that kind of information, it was also something that I could do for all the units at once, then writing the actual AI was like super trivial, super simple behavior tree because it was so well-informed. So that sort of a general question I have to the people who've been work talking about uh, generating uh, AI agents that play various games is, I mean, depending on the goal of the agent playing the game, but if you if you kind of know have a rough sense of what the relevant abstractions could do you could probably do a lot of work with like super efficient algorithm gathering the right data and presenting it in a way that sort of fits what should go into the ai because if the ai is just going to watch a, a screen of pixels like just reading that data and understand what's going in of that that's of course like a super complex task in and of itself that's going to be like 99% of what the AI is trying to do. And then like the last 1% is going to be like, oh, okay, that means that's probably an enemy. So then I'll try to shoot him, but also stay away from the bullets coming towards me, that kind of stuff. Uh, do you want to go first? Go I just wanted to reflect, I, I love hearing those perspectives because as, as mentioned um, in kind of on the research side, we're not as steeped in the realities of what does it actually mean to try and apply these techniques to um, an actual game when you actually have to ship, when you want to um, create something that is genuinely enjoyable and playable. Um, what we're thinking about and what, we're, what, what I'm listening to here is also where do we think, think these uh, technologies are going? So what are the kinds of things that are already in principle possible and maybe it's a matter of it hasn't been adapted um, as as rapidly as it could be, or you know, there's some resistance, etc. Versus, um, what are the genuine opportunities where, if we could drive this technology just this much further, what could become possible? What could it mean in terms of new creative tools or new types of um, player experiences? Um, there quite a few aspects that, that you just mentioned. Um, creators want control over their creation. They want something that genuinely empowers them to be creative rather than reusing stuff that people have thought about before. Um, we want um, to 
create experiences that, of course, um, are, are engaging. And there's this factor of cost as well. Even if something is in principle pos possible, if it's not viable in the budget of a typical game, then it's absolutely useless to people. And that gives us really interesting um, perspectives and inspires uh, a lot of the research questions that we're thinking about. So I think that's some great ways, quick, quick, great ways to, to, to think about what to take away from the summer school. I think thinking about the AI summit and that that battle between ML and, and GoFi, um, what I love about this panel is we sort of reflect four different games, four very different definitions of what AI is needed in there. And so like communication uh, is, is going to be key to sort of figuring that out. I love what you just said about like, how do we push things forward? So if we focus like the summit on that, it actually sort of helps ground it in, in those sorts of things. Um, but there's also very different computational budgets based on Bad North versus a, a Total War. You're doing 100,000 times more computation, from what I can tell, than, than we do in a lot of RL, which is just a, a forward pass over a neural network. But with a game like Valorant, you're trying to simulate the entire game 120 ticks a second. And so you're given very, very little time slices to actually do any computation. And so because of all these different constraints, the various many different types of games we can create, it makes it really hard to fit all of that into a one-day summit and then agree on what should be in that summit. So I don't envy your role. <laughs>Hey all, Tommy here with a quick plug for an additional way you can support and engage with Branching Factor and everything happening at AI and Games. Our new website is hosted over on Substack, the popular newsletter website. You can catch up with every episode of AI and Games, including written versions of every video. Plus, each episode of Branching Factor is also available for you to listen there as well. By signing up with a free subscription, you guarantee that every update on everything I'm working on is sent directly to you and you don't have to manage different apps or social media platforms to keep in the loop. Plus, you can also support AI and Games as a paid subscriber on Substack from as little as $5 a month. And with that, you get access to additional bonus content, including ad-free episodes of Branching Factor, our monthly newsletter and recordings from community meetings as we discuss future content coming down the pipeline. To subscribe, head on over to AIandGames.com to find out even more or search for AI and Games on your Substack reader. First of all, thank you. <laughs> uh, also, you know, full disclosure, Dugu is also part of, of that advisory board as well. And so it's, it's, a, it's a long meeting uh, <laughs> that we have to do on Zoom as we, as we kind of uh, figure that out. And I think we're, good, we're about to start all that again very soon. Yeah, yeah, you, I can see the same look in your eye. <laughs> um, but no, I think certainly the, there was, I think Katya actually really summarised quite nicely that a lot of these techniques we're a year or two away from being useful and practical in a game production capacity. And now, if you think, you know, I was talking about AlphaStar and what have you, but we're now at a point where cheat detection is becoming a prevalent thing being done using DeepRL, or we have the likes of motion matching for animation. We've got texture upscaling being used for helping either on, you know, running it on a, an NVIDIA card, or you've got it as part of like upscaling for like a remaster of a classic game. Like these things were all just a year or two away from being really practical for us. Um, moving into a completely different uh, wheelhouse, I personally was actually quite taken uh, with David's talk yesterday. 
on ethics of AI for games. And this raised a number of issues. You know, if you fell asleep during it, catch the recording later. Um, also, why did you fall asleep during it? We're having words later. Um, <laughs> but critically, there was the part about the transparency efficacy trade-off. And, uh, and for the benefit of everyone, in case you're not quite familiar with what that meant, um, David, of course, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, we have these two aspects that are going to influence ethical application of AI in games. And first of all, transparency was, is it ethical to conceal an AI system knowing the general distrust towards machines, but then also the efficacy side of that coin, which is would transparency hurt the user experience and could an opaque system prevent fair choices uh, being offered to the user? And so I was just kind of curious, did that did that concept sit with you at all afterwards? Because it sat with me for a long time after that talk. And particularly as someone who spends an awful lot of time on the internet trying to make very opaque systems transparent, um, that really resonated with me quite strongly. So yeah, I was just wondering if anyone had any strong or even weak thoughts on that having seen the talk. Okay. <laughs> no, sorry, it's a tough one. Uh, yeah. Um... So I'm going to put on a slightly different hat. So how do I answer this right without getting in trouble? Um, so our players love our games. And oftentimes they will try to game the system in order to get what they want out of our games. And so imagine you're building a recommender system that's like your shop where we give personalized discounts uh, based on skins that we think you would love. Um, and we want you to have a great experience. We want you to feel good about buying that. But if it was fully transparent, you could just game the system to get exactly what you wanted, which in the end hurts Riot um, because we're not making enough money to therefore keep potentially keep the lights on, um, and therefore it affects the long-term longevity of the game. So there's, there, I absolutely want to sort of be as transparent as we can in certain places, but I do fear this gaming of the system when you have tens of millions of players who are actively trying to figure out how to, to get exactly what they want out of your game um, that can make it more difficult. Certainly, like game, game players are, you know, if there's one thing they're very good at, it's stripping the fun out of whatever <laughs> it is they're playing. You don't work, I don't work for any of these studios, I can say that, it's fine. And let Twitter come at me. But yeah, it's, it's, that certainly, that was certainly, certainly something that was sitting with me was, these are situations where you don't want transparency because it's detrimental to the product, but also actually to the gameplay and community as a whole. So as a developer, I'm just thinking there's a gameplay mechanic here because uh, there's a lot. <laughs> a, this is a very common theme in sci-fi shows, right, or films, where there's a person that turns out to be an android. I mean, you could, as long as you just don't, you don't have to promise everyone that everyone you're seeing you're playing against is a human so you can have an among us type game or something where you need to find the android figure out so it's like a turing test kind of game could be good i oh yeah i i love those um thoughts because kind of being the trying to come up with a with with a counter example it, it it naturally went in this direction of well what if that was the whole point of the game um you would have to make responsible choices about what you tell people um, for example not to make the promise that everyone is human or specifically tell people well you will never know who you might interact with um so again there there is a way of understanding what is the responsible thing to do um, for full disclosure i haven't seen david's talks so i will catch up um, afterwards i promise 
Um, but why I provided the overview because I really appreciate it. Um, I I did want to emphasize that responsible AI is of is very naturally and it should be something that is on many people's minds and like it is on the technology side there is a lot of new insight being developed continuously those are really really hard questions and i think it's everyone's responsibility here to understand what kinds of games not only could be developed using this technology but what we should develop what should be the what is the way in which we want people to enjoy their free time how they want to connect with with people by playing those games so i think it's a really really important topic and i encourage everyone to to learn more about this and take this seriously um yeah i just want to add one more one point um i think yeah, in the talk, there was the point around, you know, maybe developers doing something not intentionally, but accidentally as well, right? To, um, you know, accidentally cause some harm or, you know, you put it in a much uh, better way than I did. But I guess uh, in the short term, probably it is. Um, it is not that's it is not really possible to, you know, okay, right, everything is now transparent. All the companies are now sharing uh, all the uh, secrets, regardless of, you know, we should do it or not. I mean, my point uh, is essentially, it would probably take a very long time, even if we decided that that's the uh, right direction to go to tackle this challenge. So uh, I do want to look at it from the other side as well. Uh, instead of, you know, focusing on that part, I mean, of course, we should focus and uh, follow that as well. But on the other side, in the shorter term, I wonder what are the things we can actually do to uh, prevent uh, some accidental things being happening. So, for example, one of the things I think um, is missing is having clear guidelines, is actually understanding in the development communities, you know, what are the things are okay, what are the things are big no-nos, what are the, um, you know, knowledge and um, rule set around this. So, if we actually can start to um, build some sort of guidelines around this and uh, make it public and ask companies to, you know, follow those and uh, so on. I think maybe that might help um, with this. I think we're in an we're in an interesting space that the my perspective that the technology is moving so quickly that establishing guidelines and building consensus around that has been very difficult because the goalposts keep shifting if I just keep mixing that yeah. um, And the natural end game of that is, and this is not just for games, I think across all of tech sectors, is eventually governments begin to intervene. And so now subsequently we've got the likes of European Commission, we've got the UK government, okay. Um, and we've got the US government who are also trying to look at this and see, like the UK government will just do whatever the European Commission does. Or they'll do the opposite, backtrack a week later. You can tell I'm stuck on this island. Um, so, but yeah, I think that right now it looks like those guidelines are actually going to come more from legislation, which is often quite destructive and detrimental because quite often then the, the policymakers don't really have the nuanced understanding of this in the way to understand that the long-term ramifications of legislation that's introduced um, usually it's built with the intent to hurt to help people but sometimes it actually can be 
I that was something the tongue. I know. I said built to hurt people. It wasn't my intent. Built to help people, and then it backfires. Um, so yeah, on that cheery note. Uh, speaking speaking of um, legal quandaries, <clears throat> I figured we can't do a panel for uh, pushing an hour without bringing up the generative AI conversation. Is that? I just saw you looking. You went, no, <laughs> I wasn't cleared for legal for this. Um, you know, even this week while we're here, as I mentioned already, we've had another generative set of generative AI tools come out, and it's kind of been a background discussion. GPC this year, it was a background discussion at this summer. I was going to say GPT-4 dropped while we were at GDC yes, and then suddenly the whole conversation was, did you, have a, did you look at the GPT thing? And I'm like, no, what, what's going on? Like literally in the middle of talks, everyone's on Twitter like, oh God. And so actually, interestingly, Wes, you gave a really nice insight into how you're exploring these technologies in the context of Riot and how they're practical from a production perspective, whether they're relevant um, to a developer? Is this actually supporting their production needs? Is it not? And I just wanted to kind of get, you know, kind of the, the, the measurement of the temperature, as it were, like particularly among your communities, your institutions, like what's the appetite for generative AI at this point in the context of actually using it for your day-to-day -day? or in, in Catch's context as well, actually researching it in the context of games? Um, our engineers and test QA and everyone super excited to get their hands on chat GPT and, uh, and the like, um, they're very excited to see what it can do to help facilitate, uh, structural programming tasks. Can it generate QA tests for us? Um, we are working to get GitHub copilot in so that we can actually augment, uh, our engineers in that way. So from that perspective, everyone's quite excited to just get their hands on it and start playing because we've, We've asked our teams to hold off messing with it for a production job uh, while we don't have the right business licenses in place uh, so that we don't inadvertently leak information um, as you've seen elsewhere. Um, let, me, let me hang on. Let me just go and chat GPT and ask a few questions about it. And I think generally there's there's a lot of enthusiasm to see how it can change the work that, that people do and, and a lot of uh, belief that it can get rid of sort of some of the mundane tasks that they may or, or more challenging tasks that they do uh, and sort of improve it. From the creative side, there's more, not resistance, but more apprehension of sort of how it's going to fit into their day-to-day. -day. Um, a lot of it, which I, I can fully recognize now after having worked with them for for many months is like it, while it looks really beautiful to an untrained eye, it's not quite what they want out of it uh, from that side. So it's like, I'd rather just start from my own. Um, whereas like I can go to chat GPT and say, can you write me a blog article about this? And it looks mostly right. I can fiddle with a couple words and I'm good. Um, the art sort of, it's really sort of missing some of that soul uh, that they need to, to really rely on it. And so I think we have work to do there. Um, uh, but from the other side, we're really just trying to figure out how we get them the, the tools in their hands more quickly.
just add, add. Um, yeah, it is quite similar in uh, our company as well. People are really excited and especially on the um, getting rid of mundane tasks part of things. And on the art side, it's sort of similar as well. But maybe in the concept art part of things, people are a little bit more, you know, excited about it because, you know, it's basically the inspiration that it creates. But also... Um, you know, we are in the experimental uh, area and we have guidelines around, you know, nothing is going in the game before, you know, we figure out actually uh, it is just and it is fair and all those um, points that's uh, being discussed. And yeah, sometimes there's a little bit worry about it as well, like whether uh, it's going to take their jobs or whether, you know, um, because it's unknown and uh, it can go anywhere. And that's that's a fair point as well. But on that point, we have a very strong stand, uh, which is, you know, whatever we are doing, we are just going to do it to empower our developers and to make sure that these tools are there to uh, help them uh, to be more creative, help them to do their jobs better. And uh, that's that's about it, really. I think so on like artistic indie Twitter, these things are incredibly unpopular and people are very resentful of them and especially about, among the illustrators and stuff like that and i think like first of all i think this technology is inevitable kind of i mean we're the cat's out of the bag now and like you know big copyright lawsuits could maybe set back the development a couple of years but like it's coming probably and um i think it's like yeah your artists now that are like trained in the world before all this stuff they can tell that it's not you know, it's not as good as drawing the stuff yourself. It doesn't, you don't have the same control. It's not outputting the same thing. I think the question is though, are the next generation of artists, are they are they even going to learn to draw as well when they are competing with things that can just output cool results instantly? And I'm, I mean, this is sort of, this has happened in other fields multiple times in human history. So every time something new comes along, you know, like photography, for example, the value of being able to, like, you know, you know a cool oil painting of you is probably cooler than a photography of you, but it's also a lot more expensive. So in the end, you're going to train a lot fewer artists in doing those kind of super realistic oil painting kind of stuff. And, you know, maybe that's less artistically appealing as well than doing all the cubist paintings or whatever that came after photography. But I think we're definitely going to go through some of those things like a lot of the mundane tasks that artists do that's also when they learn to be good artists right i mean it's the classic thing of the beatles like if they didn't play all those hours in like weird bars in germany or whatever they did they wouldn't have developed the artistic abilities to then create their own stuff so i think all the you know like book cover illustrations or like the illustrations that go on top of newspaper articles all of those kind of things they can now be replaced with generative ai uh, to, I mean, maybe they're not as good, but they're definitely good enough and they're a lot cheaper. But that also means that a lot of new artists are not going to get trained up to the kind of standard that we've seen before. Interesting, because I actually think a lot about that in the context of programming. As high-level languages have become more prominent, as game engines that are off the shelf are more available, the competencies and the skills of programmers have changed quite drastically. As someone who spent 10 years teaching university students how to program, <laughs> no comments. Um, but also, uh, but even fundamentally, the skills that people have 
of how to understand how computers work has changed quite drastically, courtesy of operating systems, courtesy of uh, modes of interaction as well. And so like we literally had documents to explain how direct directories work because of, because we had students who would be like, oh, I just stick stuff up in the cloud. Like, where? <laughs> well, that's in the cloud. Like, you can put folders in OneDrive, man. Like, no, it's just apparently like their OneDrive is just this miasma of stuff and it's slightly terrible. Uh, it's but even so, like we compare with the kids, like we, uh, yeah, we compare our stuff with the kids, and we kind of like we need to realize as well that the stuff that we grew up, I mean, we're probably of a slightly different generation as well, but the the stuff we, the stuff we grew up with are not eternal either, right? Like I don't know how to smelt or to make the iron tools that I need for my daily life, uh, so you know that's like. That's our kids are going to live in a very different world from us as well, just like we live in a very different world from our parents. Older millennials. Patrick, do you have any thoughts on this? It's 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 a complex space, um, as 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 everyone's mentioning. Lots of uncertainty, and a high degree of uncertainty brings with it a lot of risk. Uh, you're mentioning uh, some of those, and also a lot of opportunity. Um, I feel, in terms of research and my team, there's this genuine sense of possibility that I haven't seen in the 10 plus years that I've been in this field of something really important is happening and it will bring new types of opportunities. And some of the biggest questions around that, that you can ask are, what will they be? How do I create a research strategy, a product strategy? How do I explore systematically um, within that high degree of uncertainty? And there, you know, it's, 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 important to think about that deeply and figure out how we can make our best contribution in that space. We'll need lots and lots of different perspectives in order to figure out what are the right ways forward and what kinds of new opportunities we should be building towards. Thank you very much, all of you. We've now, we've actually been over time slightly, but uh, if there's any further thoughts, comments, queries, questions that you have of our wonderful speakers, please take a moment to have a chat with them uh, as we wrap up later on tonight. Thank you all of you for joining me on the stage today and thank you to all of you uh, for listening to us. Done. And that's it for our panel. Uh, I just wanted to take a moment just to say thank you to all of you for tuning in and listening all the way through. I hope you really enjoyed it. I had a great time being part of that panel. It was a little intimidating trying to prepare, I think, and getting all the questions ready. But I'm, I'm really grateful for all of our, our panellists who came on board and I think they were all just fantastic. So once again, big shout out, Katja Hoffman, Dugu Chakmak, Oscar Stahlberg and Wesley Kerr. Uh, we'll be back with our more regular programming uh, with the rest of the gang, whether it's George, Mike or Anne or Quang um, in future episodes. Uh, but yeah, thanks very much for tuning in to this episode of Branching Factor. And also I just want to take a quick moment to thank the organisers once again at the summer school for having me go along. It was really, really fun and I'm hoping we can find an excuse to do it again sometime. And with that, we're going to wrap it up here. I'm going to start playing the music. Don't forget to rate us, share us your love. Also share us your feedback. Reach out to us over at branchingfactoryaiandgames.com. And with that, we're going to log off. I'll see you later. Goodbye. The Branching Factor podcast is hosted and produced by me, Tommy Thompson with support from Anne Sullivan, George Osborne, Mike Cook, and Quang Yun. Our theme music is provided courtesy of Ben Ridge. The logo and thumbnail art is thanks to Helen O'Dell. 
Special thanks to Shraddha Gupta and Phoebe Trigg for additional production support, and of course, to all of you out there listening. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Branching Factor. Wherever you are in the world, be sure to stay safe, have fun, and we'll be back.